but we're going to be talking about three levels of mind, looking at the Bible, um, looking at some things. And to lay the foundation or to begin this, the way I want to um, uh, lay this out, I want to talk about, uh, kind of to give you an introduction, the difference between um, content and structure as it relates to the mind or as it relates to your experience or as it relates to your path or things that you're doing that maybe you're trying to improve yourself, better yourself. And it seems like to me, uh, the vast majority <clears throat> of stuff that's out there, stuff that's on YouTube, stuff that's in self-help books, stuff that's in various different uh, spiritual paths, particularly in the spiritual paths. And this is where I want to draw some distinction, particularly in religion. And again, I'm speaking primarily about Christianity because that's what I've, I'm the most familiar with. But I'm sure it's true in other religions as well. We have a tendency to focus on content, which is the what, the content. So if we're talking about the conscious mind, the subconscious mind, the superconscious, we may be talking about or emphasizing or all anyone ever thinks about is the, the content of the experience, the what of what's in your mind. So, for example, in religion, it's important what you believe, right? I mean, we were always, I was anyway, for many, many years, <clears throat> wanted to make sure I had sound doctrine. Uh, it's the teaching. It's the what you believe. If you believe this, then <clears throat> you're one of us. If you believe this, then you're in. If you don't believe this, then you're out. A uh, classic example coming out of evangelicalism was, if you believe <clears throat> that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for your sins, that he's the substitute, and you accept that, you put your faith in that, then you can be saved. <clears throat> and then we took it even further. If you believe in divine healing, if you believe that Jesus you know, paid a price for your healing, uh, if you b can believe that and make the exchange, then you can receive healing. If you believe that God's your provider, then you believe it strongly enough, then you'll see supernatural provision. If you have faith to move a mountain, if you believe that the mountain's going to move, all of that is content. Can you see that? And so we get hung up on the what. But when we're talking about the structure of the mind or the structure of experience, we're not talking so much about the what as we're talking about the how. How do you do what you do with your mind? Not so much what do you believe, <clears throat> but how are you doing the belief inside your head? Um, that's a totally different thing. Now, even in psychology, even in counseling and therapy, the emphasis seems to be on the what. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is a primary mode of intervention and therapeutic uh, counseling. So if you go see a, a traditional counselor, traditional psychologist, they may use cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive meaning the mind, behavior meaning the actions, and then therapy that will address both your behaviors and your thinking. And so behavioral therapy is looking at the content of your behavior. What are you doing? And <clears throat> the mind, the cognitive part, is looking at what are the thoughts, perhaps? What are you thinking that is directing that behavior? And so it seeks to address the thinking and behaving or that sort of mind-body connection. But it's all focused on content. When you start thinking about structure, you have to ask yourself a different question. You have to say, how does this work? So if someone comes for therapy and let's say that they're uh, anxious, let's say they have anxiety, then if we're focused strictly on content, we would start looking at, well, what are you anxious about? What are the things in your life that make you anxious? And what are you thinking about? What's the content of your mind? What are you focusing on that's making you anxious? And 
invariably, you're probably going to find that most people, when they are feeling anxious, they're meditating upon, they're thinking about in their mind some kind of worst case scenario, what's wrong with the world. Perhaps they're emphasizing the negative uh, aspects of their life over against the positive aspects of their life. That's all content. Structure asks a different experience. Structure would ask the person who's having anxious thoughts. Instead of, why are you anxious? Or, uh, what are you anxious about? The question to begin to look at structure is, how do you do anxiety? How do you do anxiety in your mind? How do you do anxious living? Or how do you do depressed living? Not so much about content, as it is about structure. What's the structure of the experience? So I, I hope that explains the difference, because what I want to look at, because I think it's the most neglected area in spirituality, self-help, self-improvement, whatever, is the structure of our experience. How do we do what we do? Or when we're talking about the three levels, three levels of the mind, how do we work? Because here's what I've discovered. I've discovered that the content, when it comes to God, when it comes to the supernatural, when it comes to the spiritual, the content is not nearly as important as what we've made it out to be. That I, I think we've done, one, one of the things in cognitive therapy that you look for is you look for what's called cognitive distortions. You look for wrong thinking. Uh, and by wrong, I mean the map doesn't match the territory. It's not accurate. The thinking is not accurate to reality. So the closer you can get your mental map, your thinking, to what's really going on, the healthier you become, the further away or the greater distance there is between the map and the territory, the less that the map represents the territory, then typically, usually, the more problems that you have, um, if, that, if that makes sense to you. <clears throat> and so we thought, uh, one of the cognitive distortions that I had was I thought that the content determined the outcome that I was getting. If I could believe these things about Christ, then I would be saved. The outcome would be eternal life. The outcome would be knowing God. The outcome would be experiencing God. And the cause, what created that outcome, was the content, making sure I had the doctrine right, making sure I had the belief right, making sure I had the content as truth. What I'm beginning to discover is that the structure of the experience <clears throat> is really what's important. Because there can be a lot of people that have a what that they believe is true, that they affirm as being true. Um, but they still can't manifest that. They still can't create the outcome. So therefore, we have to look at that and we have to say, if the outcome is the effect, then the content, just believing the content, if that's not creating the outcome for everybody that believes that content, then we have what's called an attribution error. We are attributing cause and effect or a cause and effect process in our minds that, or in our mental maps that don't perhaps accurately reflect the territory or the outcome. So, in other words, if I believe that I can be healed of something, that's content, then just by believing that, I should be able to get the healing. But there's lots of people that believe in healing but don't get healing. So there's an attribution error if we think, well, I just got to believe the content right in order to have the experience. Or let's do it this way. I want to experience God. I want to experience intimacy with God. I want to experience fellowship with God. I want to experience the supernatural. So all I have to do is believe in God and maybe even believe in God and come through Jesus or whatever, but get the content right. And yet there are so many people that have the content right, but they're experiencing what we might call spiritual dry spells. 
in the sense that they don't see, feel, or or experience God intervening or doing something for them in their life. Does that make sense to you? So then what I began to realize was that actually there are people who believe many different things, but there are similarities in their experiences. The similarities in their experiences are attributed to the structure or the how more than the content. Is this making sense to you? Uh, so I want to look at the structure of the mind. I want to look at you and how you work. I want to look at me and how, how I work, at human beings, how the mind works, and the structure of our experience. Because we understand the structure of our experience and we can work within the how. If we understand how we work, if we understand how our mind works, if we understand how God or how spirit or how the divine or whatever you want to call it or source or whatever you want to call it, how that operates with you as a human being, then you have really important keys that can begin to unlock for you the outcomes that you want and can begin to unlock for you the experience that you want and the content of what you believe the what your mind is doing is not nearly as important as understanding how the mind works. And when you understand how the mind works, now if you get the content right, if you get if you get the right content and you put it together in the right structure, now you can build a temple. Now you can build a temple. So scripture speaks about us being a temple of God, right? A temple for the Holy Spirit. If you think about architecture, architecture has content. My house is made of drywall and and two by fours and carpet and tile and plumbing and electrical and whatever else. But if I were to come to a uh, geographical location, the property that I own, and I just throw down a bunch of two-by-fours and a bunch of drywall and throw some electrical wire and electrical boxes and and uh, all that stuff, I have all the right content, but until I put the structure to it, until I put the things in the right place, and understand where those things, how the, how those things work and where they belong in the structure of the house. I cannot build a house. So it's the same thing with becoming a temple, with, with you becoming a temple for the divine, with you becoming a presence, a person that knows God, a person that can manifest the things of God. You have to have content for sure, but more importantly, you have to have the structure of it. Otherwise, you don't have a house. You don't have a temple. You just have a pile of building material. And that's where we've been. That's where a lot of people in churches have been. That's where a lot of people in therapy have been. That's where a lot of people in in uh, the self-help industry have been. They have a, a territory. They have a land them, themselves. And they just pile in all this stuff, giving no thought or having no understanding of the structure of it. And so it just becomes a pile of content. And then they get frustrated, sort, and they're trying to sort through the content and think, well, which one is it? And which one do I need to believe? And how do I make this work? Because we haven't thought about structure. So I want to talk about the structure. I want to talk about uh, three, just some basic level structure stuff. And again, for those of you that are jumping on a little bit later, catching this in the middle, we're talking about the mind, talking about the levels of the mind <clears throat> in three major areas, the conscious mind, the subconscious mind, and what some call the superconscious mind. The superconscious mind, super being that which goes above or that which goes beyond, that which goes beyond our individual consciousness. So to use different language, I might say the conscious mind, the voluntary mind, the subconscious mind, the involuntary mind, 
And the Christ mind, the superconscious would be the Christ mind. It would be the mind of Christ, the mind of the Spirit, the Logos. Now, I want to use the Bible today, which I haven't done for a while. But I want to use the Bible. And this book is an extremely, extremely, extremely powerful book. I would, I would venture to say, I'm going to make all my fundamentalist friends happy, right? This is the most powerful book, perhaps, on the planet today. Uh, and I want to talk about what makes it such a powerful book. And I'm going to go within the book itself to uh, <clears throat> to explain some of this, because it'll give you, I think, an understanding of what I want to talk about and kind of lay a foundation for where we're going to go in it. Second Corinthians chapter 3. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and 2 Corinthians chapter 3 have been really important chapters for me, not just recently, but for years, almost decades of my life. I've read these two chapters and preached out of these two chapters and looked at these two chapters and meditated on these chapters as much as anything else in the entire book. <clears throat> And I want to uh, I want to look at something that that Paul says here. Let me see if I can find it. He says uh, he says in verse six, Second uh, Corinthians chapter three, verse six. He says talking about God. Says God also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Now watch what he says here. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death was written and engraved on stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadily look at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be much more glorious? For the ministry, <clears throat> if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. So he's contrasting ministry, the ministry of the Spirit with the ministry of the letter, the ministry of life with the ministry of death, and the ministry of righteousness with the ministry of condemnation. Now, in the context of it, he also makes another distinction. In verse three and 2, if you back up, he says, you are an epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, the heart. So when he's talking about the ministry of the letter, the ministry that kills, the ministry that produces condemnation, the ministry that um, produces death, he's talking about what's written outside of us, what's written on tablets of stone, or if he was speaking today, what's written inside a book. He's contrasting the, the ministry of preaching what's written on a book versus releasing the, the information written on a book, that's the letter, versus the ministry or the information written on our heart and released, that is the spirit. He's talking about the difference between the epistle that he's writing versus the epistle written in your own heart. So the ministry of life and the ministry of the spirit is that which is written upon your own heart. The ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation, is that which is written outside of you, that which is written on tablets, that which is written on with ink and paper. Not written with ink, but written by the Spirit of the living God. If you read that and you understand he's contrasting the, the written letter versus the Spirit letter, he's contrasting the page and the book versus the heart, then you understand when he's talking about the ministry of condemnation, he's talking about the book. When he's talking about the ministry of righteousness, he's talking about the Spirit and the heart. When he's talking about the ministry of death... He's talking about the book. When he's talking about the ministry of life, he's talking about your heart and the spirit. You see what I'm saying? So the reality is, now the word letter, when it says letter there, in the Greek, it's where we get the word literal. So literally, 
what he's saying is, is that if we take, if we go into this book, and we see this as God's word to me, we see the book, and we say, this is God talking to me. This is where God speaks. This is what I need to believe. This is what I need to be faithful to. This is what I need to be loyal to. We are stepping into the ministry of the letter and the ministry that kills, the ministry that brings condemnation. We don't have to look around very far to to see that. It brings condemnation into our own heart when we read it. It brings death to us, separation from God, separation from other people. They don't believe like me. They don't have the same values that I have. They don't have the same philosophies that I have. So they're other than separation. Uh, if it's creating shame in my heart, God is other than. It's creating condemnation, so it's creating death. So you, you see how all this works. So what he's saying is, he's saying there's a new covenant, there's a new way, and the new way is, is the ministry of the Spirit, the epistle that's written upon your heart, the information that's coming from the Spirit into your heart, when that's released, that brings life. Then he goes on further, and he says, uh, in verse 17, he says, Now, the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. Now watch. But we all as beholding in the mirror, the glory of the Lord. He didn't say beholding as in a mirror of the Lord. For years I read that. For years I read that. I thought, if I could just see Jesus, if I could just behold the glory of Jesus, if I could just see Him on the throne, then that would be a mirror to me, and I would be transformed into the same image that He is, and therefore conformed to Christ's likeness, And therefore, I could wear my bracelet. What would Jesus do? I could look in the Bible, the scriptures out here. What would Jesus do? When I'm reading the scriptures, I'm beholding Jesus, and that's a mirror to me. But he doesn't say that at all. He doesn't say, beholding as in a mirror, we see the Lord. He says, beholding as in a mirror, we see the glory of the Lord. There's a big difference. Because who do you see when you look in a mirror? I don't look in a mirror and see Jesus. I don't look in a mirror and see Ben Urban. Ben Urban doesn't look in a mirror and see Aaron Tomlinson. He's probably like, oh, thank God. Uh, I'm sure Beth is like, thank God. (laughs) You see yourself. You see yourself when you look in a mirror. But the question becomes, are we seeing ourselves clearly? And so with this new covenant, with understanding this structure, we can see ourselves clearly for who we are in our originality. In our original pattern, our original template. <clears throat> and when we see that self, we realize that that self, that self that you are, that authentic self, that unadulterated self, that pure self, is the glory of God. The Christ in you is the hope of glory. That you have the glory of God inside of you. The problem is how we self-reflect. Do we self-reflect in a way that we see ourselves in that way, or do we self-reflect in a way that we see a distortion of ourselves. And that's where we get into the structure. How are you reflecting? How are you looking? So the reason I say the Bible is so powerful is because on the one hand, if you take it literally, if you take it as God outside of you speaking to you, as the revelation of God for all, for all time, that i got to get it in me. i got to get the Word of God in me. I've got to hide it in my heart. 
so that I can know God, so that I can live right, so that I can have abundant life, so that I'm, I'm trying to get this, take this and get this written on my heart, it creates judgment, death, chaos, wars, inquisitions, destroyed relationships, all kinds of stuff. You see it? But somewhere along the way, I, I was gifted because I began to read the, the Bible and I began to understand that the Bible isn't as much, the literal story isn't important. The literal historical account isn't where the goods are. It isn't where the treasure is. It isn't where the power of it to transform is. It's understanding that in these stories and as we read this stuff, that we are seeing reflect various reflections of ourselves, or that every person, every story in the Bible represents for us a state of consciousness, an experience, a way of thinking and being that all of us at times in our life pass through or can relate to. So that sometimes when I'm looking at Jesus talking to the Pharisees, I have to realize that the Pharisee is a state of consciousness. The religious people, whatever, is a state of consciousness that I can also pass through. When I read about Adam and Eve being in the garden naked and not ashamed, I can say, well, there's two historical vegans talking to a snake that got us in this mess in the first place. That's the literal interpretation. Or I can look at it and say, that's a mirror of me. When I eat at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when I look outside myself and eat and feed from something outside myself, thinking it's going to make me like God. It's, it's the Bible study in the church. Bible study in the church is eating at the tree of knowledge. It's taking knowledge of good and evil that we think outside of ourselves and trying to internalize it, trying to get inside and force it down in there regardless of how our mind or our heart operates or thinks. And then what, what happens? Then all of a sudden that brings shame. Now I'm not, not open like I was. Now all of a sudden I'm ashamed. Now I'm afraid of God. Now I'm afraid, oh, I fall short. Now I want to cover myself so other people can't see where I fall short. I don't want to be fully authentic. I don't want to be naked and not ashamed. And so I can read that story as a historical event, or I can read that story as a state of consciousness that I'm passing through eh, pretty much every time I went to Bible study. <laughs> and so it creates this fear and this separation and this stuff like that. So we start looking at this, the children of Israel walking through the wilderness, going through a tough time when they have a promise, they have an outcome, they're on their way to life, they're on their way to a land flowing with milk and honey, they're on their way to their promises, but in the meantime, they're experiencing the exact opposite. Moses tells them, hey, I'm going to lead you to a land that flows with milk and honey, and the next thing you know, they're in a wilderness desert where there's no water. So not only is there not milk and honey, there's no water and there's nothing to eat. So in their experience, what's presented right before them is the exact opposite of what they want. And what they do is they give into the experience and they start grumbling and they start complaining against God and they give up on their promise. The goal was for them to be able to be in that moment and realize they were not frozen in that moment, that they were passing through the wilderness, that they were passing through experiences that were a contradiction to their promises, that they were passing through experiences in their circumstances that contradicted their hopes and their dreams, and that they needed to not give up on their hopes and dreams and not be so focused, uh, as, as another scripture says, looking not at the things that are seen because the things that are seen are subject to change, but looking at the eternal, the things that are not seen because those things are eternal. So walking by faith and not by sight. So the message of the children of Israel is how to walk by faith and not by sight. So I can look at that and I can get hung up. Well, is there archaeological evidence that 
this stuff happened? No, absolutely there is not. In fact, the archaeological evidence to the historical truth is completely contrary to that. So I can throw it away as saying, well, it's just a myth, or I can look at that and say, how does this relate to my own state of consciousness? How does this teach me to walk by faith and not by sight? And what mistakes did they make and how they did things so that I don't make the mistakes in how I'm doing things? And then I draw wisdom from it, I draw encouragement from it, I draw strength from it, and I can move forward. Now, I suppose you could do that with any myth. You could do that with any story. You could do that with any book, and people have. But what makes the Bible unique is that the Bible, the, the writers in the Bible, are having experiences with the mind of God. They are having experiences with spirit, and so it provides a tool or a pathway for us that can lead us through the three levels of the mind, the conscious mind, the subconscious mind, into the superconscious mind, or into the spirit, or into this place that Paul's talking about, where we're beholding, with unveiled face, the glory of the Lord, as in a mirror, and being transformed into the same glory, reflecting on our own states of consciousness, until we find the... the and, and, and in that sense, then, the, the, the stories... The power of it can purify our hearts. Now, remember, Jesus said the pure in heart will what? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. Now, we got purity all wrong in the church because we thought purity had to do with sexuality primarily. I mean, if you talk about purity culture, typically what people think of that have background experience with it, with purity culture, they're thinking strictly about sexual purity or they're thinking about moral purity on whatever level that there is. But the, but the word purity just means to be in an original condition. It means to have no additives. If, if I drink pure water, pure H2O, then it's just H2O. If it's mineral water or tap water or whatever, it's got additives. It may have chlorine in it. It may have minerals in it, whatever. That robs, that adulterates the water so that it's not pure. It's not in its essence what it is created to be because there are additives there. And so a lot of the, 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 the pathway, the pathway then, the how into superconsciousness, into beholding God, into connecting with the mind of God, into having the mind of Christ, then is purification. And purification is not what we think. It's not this moral purification. It is returning to my original condition. It is returning to my authentic self. So the more authentic I am with myself, the more pure I am, and the more I'm on the pathway to beholding myself, beholding the glory of God, and tapping into superconsciousness or into the mind of God. Does that make sense? So th that's the introduction. Um, <laughs> but let's talk about this conscious mind. Subconscious mind, superconscious mind. They're all states of consciousness. So when you have an, what we call an encounter with God, then your state has altered from being in conscious, subconscious, without the superconscious, to experiencing the superconscious. And there has to be an alignment, and each mind has a task. And each mind needs to be doing the task given to that mind. And we need to understand how those things work so that we can have genuine superconscious experiences. We can have genuine times when we get spirit downloads. Or I like how uh, my friend Bishop uh, Brodnax, uh, Jamel Brodnax, says it. And by the way, I'm going to post his message from today because that dude can freaking preach, man. <laughs> he, he did such an incredible job. Uh, today preaching. I got to catch a little bit of it. I'll post it later, but if I can make any recommendation, if you don't have time to watch both of these, log off of me, find Bishop Brodnack's message. It'll, it'll make you happy, man. That, anyway, that's just a plug, 
Not really a plug for him. I'm just telling you, that's quality stuff. Uh, but anyway, I digress. Um, so we, we want to, um, I don't know how I got off on that, but <laughs> we want to understand the conscious mind, the voluntary mind, how it works, and realize it's not bad. It just needs to do its job. And for a lot of us, let me tell you something. We focus a lot on the subconscious. We, we think change in life, that we need to focus on the subconscious. I'm going to tell you, we have great deficiencies in our society today with the conscious mind. And I'll show you that in a minute. And it'll probably trigger you. Uh, it's amazing what triggers people these days. Uh, when you get triggered, you're not awake. When you get triggered, you're asleep. And, and I'll talk about that in a minute. And I'll talk about awakening and what that means. So the conscious mind has a job. Conscious mind in the older literature, some of them called it the voluntary mind or the will. You're talking about the conscious mind or the way we do it today, we talk about the left being left brain or right brain. Left brain, you remember the L, stands for linear, lined up thinking, step one, step two, step three, step four. Logical, does this make sense, critical thinking. And language. So the, the babbling that goes on inside your head, all of that's tied to the left brain. And all of that is what we, what the ancients and traditions and psychologists might identify or call the conscious mind, the conscious mind. The subconscious, the right side of the brain, is, uh, has to do with, um, pictures, has to do with imagination, has to do with music, has to do with global thinking in a collage rather than having steps. You think in a picture, you think in a collage, you think more holistically. That might be what we call the subconscious mind, but I'm going to qualify that and say I think that there are different parts of the brain that are involved in the subconscious mind as well. The conscious mind has to do with will and where you give your attention. It's the executive self. The purpose and the function of the conscious mind is to drive the, the ship of your life, the boat of your life, to make choices, to choose the direction that your life is going. It has the value and the power of choice and will. So somebody just, you know, if you could type in the comments, the conscious mind equals the power of choice and will. It's where your willpower is. The subconscious mind, they would call it the involuntary mind, does not have the capacity to discriminate or make choice. That's the conscious mind. That's the conscious mind's job. It does not discriminate or make choice. The subconscious mind, then, you could think about it, is the storehouse so when it comes to information, it comes to what you're exposing yourself to, uh, what movies you're watching, whether or not you're watching this, whether you're making loving little hearts or making angry faces. That's all your choice. That's, that's all your conscious mind. The subconscious is exposed to experiences. The subconscious is exposed to information. And it becomes the storage place of those things, the repository for them, the repository of memories, the repository of things. But also its value is it 
integrates and operates or is the engine room or the place that gives thrust to things that you don't want to have to consciously remember. If you've ever taught kids anything, how to walk, the conscious mind, the will, the choice was involved until the subconscious mind picked it up from the conscious mind and formed a habit, meaning it could operate involuntarily. That's why it's the involuntary mind. In other words, sure, I make a choice to get up and go get a cup of coffee after walk, but I don't have to think about how do I balance myself, how do I take a step, what do I do now. Same thing with reading, right? My son's learning to read, so he's got to sound out the words. He'll get stuck at a word, what is that word? Well, once he learns it, what does it mean to learn? It means that there's a transference, there's a handing off where the conscious mind, so right now the conscious mind, he's having to will to read, he's having to stop and get stuck, what does this word mean? Because he doesn't have anything in the memory bank about that word in order to recognize it. So once he learns to read, learns to read, then what that means is that the involuntary mind, the subconscious mind, has adopted that pattern and behavior so he doesn't have to sound it out. He doesn't have to think about it. He just recognizes it and it happens like that. So that frees the conscious mind to have more power of choice and particularly more power to set awareness and to set focus. That's why you can drive home from work and talk to the friend that you're carpooling with about whatever it is you're passionate about or sit there and think about a memory and maybe you even go through intersections and stuff and that you aren't even consciously aware of because you've learned to drive. So the subconscious mind is all about what you've learned and what the storehouse of that is. It's the involuntary mind. Now, the other aspect of this that's important that I want to talk about is it also controls the involuntary aspects of your body. So the subconscious mind is not just in the right side of the brain and pictures and music and all that stuff that's not logical. It's also in the body. It is the information that has become flesh in you. That's really important. In fact, hypnosis, here's an interesting thing about hypnosis, and you'll understand this in a minute. Uh, I think this will help you understand what I'm saying. The early experimentation with hypnosis wasn't so much about trying to change your self to make you feel better about yourself, to improve your self-esteem or your self-image, a lot of self-hypnosis does today. It was, how can the mind affect the body? Uh, how can the power of suggestion and using the mind lower your blood pressure? Can it affect your digestion? And so the early experimenters with this, it was fascinating. Um, back when hypnosis was more popular and first coming out and people were working with it, um, they could take a subject under a state of hypnosis and they could take a pencil or a pen and they could tell them it's a burning cigarette and they could touch the eraser, <laughs> this is kind of sick, touch the eraser to the skin and a burn and a blister would immediately uh, show up. So everybody not under hypnosis could see what the hypnotist was doing, but the subject that was under hypnosis would see, smell, and experience that as a cigarette to the point that a burn would manifest on the body. They also learned that they could, they could go so deeply into the subconscious mind that they could access the pain centers in the pain and pleasure center and they could turn the pain and pleasure centers on and off. So I remember seeing a stage hypnotist give somebody an onion and tell them it was a juicy green apple and I sat there and ate an onion 
<laughs> and experienced it like it was an apple. Now I have to wonder later if they didn't have some digestion issues or something. <laughs> but they also used hypnosis and surgery. They also got to the point where in certain subjects, they could take them so deeply into hypnosis that their mind would accept the suggestion that they could turn off the pain. Let's say they were having local surgery on their wrist. They could turn off the pain centers on their right arm and the person could perform uh, local surgery on the wrist without ever using any anesthesia because the subject was under hypnosis. And so they were able to not experience pain because their brain so accepted the information, so accepted the suggestion that they didn't have pain, that they experienced it as such. It's why we have to have placebo trials on medicines. Um, because based on the FDA, in order for a drug company, those evil pharmaceutical companies, to sell a product, it has to be run through a placebo test. What does that mean? A placebo means you can take a sugar pill or you can take a pill and think it's medicine that's going to cure you, and it will because of the power of suggestion and the power of your own mind to heal the body. And so in order for a pharmaceutical company to declare this medicine cause and effect, this medicine actually causes this effect, there has to be a control group that does not receive the medicine to see if there's any difference. But there also has to be a control group that's receiving a placebo to see if the medicine's actually working or if it's the belief in the mind that's actually working. And there are some medicines that appear to work, but they go through trials and the placebo effect is just as strong or stronger than the medicine itself. So the conclusion is there's nothing in the medicine or the pill itself that's actually healing you. It's a placebo. You believe it's going to work, and so it's the power. It's contacting those centers of the mind. And the subconscious mind, which is in the body and connected to the body, is controlling the body and making the body heal. So a lot of healing that I know that I got was the power of the mind and the body, not necessarily the power of God although that is the power of God. But here's what I mean. Anybody can do that. It doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus, Buddha, you're an atheist, whatever. You can be healed through the power of your mind. So, you know, I learned this with Burns early on. I learned that if I touch something hot, I can send a signal to my subconscious and to my hand that says, my hand is away from this now. You can stop hurting. You can stop sending me the signal because it's no longer in danger of melting or burning up. And you will not blister. And I can tell you, I haven't had a blister from a burn, and I've burned myself on, you know, different things, oven, stoves, touch something hot, inadvertently, irons, whatever. And uh, I'm not sure I've had a blister in 20 years. When I was on my honeymoon, I was in Miami Beach, and uh, they had these signs. Now, I'm a farm boy from Avondale, Colorado, so they have these signs that say, watch out for Portuguese man-of-war. Well, I don't know what the hell a Portuguese man-of-war is. It doesn't sound good, that's for sure. <laughs> So we're out there swimming in the ocean, and it's a, it's, it's a sort of jellyfish. And I swam right into, I don't know if it was one jellyfish. It felt like a school of jellyfish. I have no idea. But it got entangled. Its tentacles got entangled all the way around my chest and my, uh, and I was entangled in it. I was like fighting with it to get away from it. Man, it hurt like hell. I get out of the, the water, and I mean, my chest and stomach is just bright red with a rash, and it's stinging like crazy. So I lay down on the beach and I start sending healing suggestions. Now, at the time, I thought I'm just believing God for my healing. But I'm talking to my body and I'm telling my body, you're going to heal 
Jesus healed you, Jesus heals you, you're healed, you're healed, you're healed. Within 30 minutes, everything was gone. I was able to get back in the water. Now, the locals told me, now maybe some of you live on beaches, you, you can correct me on this, but the locals told me that usually you have to get medicine to deal with the rash, and that usually it lasts longer than a half hour. Uh, and I was entangled in that thing, so I got a lot of it on me. <clears throat> that was, it wouldn't matter if I believed in Jesus, wouldn't matter if I was an atheist. See, content. The content had nothing to do with it, except that the content was, I was suggesting, healing, but we had all this other content that's not important. Where the healing came was simply my subconscious mind accepted the suggestion from my will, from my choice, my choosing to be healed, my belief that I could be healed, accepted the suggestion from the conscious mind, subconscious mind went to work on it. This is the parable of the sower. Jesus said the sower went out to sow, and some fell on good ground, and it bore fruit. The sower is the conscious mind. The ground, or what we call the heart, is the subconscious. So when you read in the Bible, what the Bible calls the heart is what we call now the subconscious mind. So in 2 Corinthians 3, again, what's written on the heart, what is in the subconscious mind as the Spirit of God is interacting and writing, putting information on the subconscious mind, <clears throat> boom, there you go. Now life, now healing, now glory, now all that stuff. You see? But it's, it's about the structure of it. We'll get to the superconscious mind in a minute. Maybe. Maybe we'll save that for another time. Because if you do not have the conscious mind working right and the subconscious mind working right, you will not be able to access the superconscious mind without completely distorting, defiling, and messing up what it is that the mind of God is trying to communicate to you. Because your programming and your patterning is so in place. Now, here's the thing about hypnosis. Hypnosis does not work for everyone. Don't think you can just go get hypnotized and make your pain go away. A lot of people in pain clinics and stuff that have used hypnosis, and people get minimal help. Because <clears throat> here's what they found out about hypnosis. It does have to do with the skill of the hypnotist. The skill of the hypnotist is very important. <clears throat> but what's more important than the skill of the hypnotist is the skill of the hypnotized or the ability of the hypnotized person, the person going under a state of hypnosis, to so remove their choice, <clears throat> their own choice, their own will, <clears throat> and their own conscious mind, their own ability to discriminate. <clears throat> so in other words, the conscious mind discriminates against the suggestion whether or not it's going to accept it. So I can tell you right now... <clears throat> I'm probably not somebody that could <clears throat> not feel pain because my conscious mind is going to be too much in charge discriminating against that suggestion. A person who's able to go into deep hypnosis is able to <clears throat> so silence, excuse me, they're able to so remove the conscious mind that the subconscious mind is wide open. So here's what happens. <clears throat> The hypnotist is taking the place of the person's own will, choice, and conscious mind. They have so moved their conscious mind out of the way that now another voice, not the voice up here, not the voice coming from them, but another voice is telling them what to feel. Another voice is telling them what to experience. 
Another voice is telling them what to think. Another voice is telling them how to behave. And the subconscious is receiving that as though it's coming from your own executive self. So that the hypnotist takes the place of the conscious mind for the person. They so silence their subconscious mind that they open this huge gateway and now the person doing the hypnotizing, they're the conscious mind. That The subconscious mind is opening up and saying, okay, we're ready to take direction, which what's supposed to happen, the way it's supposed to work, is it supposed to be taking suggestion from your true will. But that steps out of the way. Now this one's speaking to me. Okay, this is what I'm going to reproduce. This is the fruit that I'm going to give. This is the effect and the experience because this is what you told me to have. So you can see then, that if you have these two, the conscious mind, the subconscious mind, working together in cooperation, working together in rapport, meaning speaking the same language, open to each other, then there's this exchange and interchange and flow. And it becomes a very, very powerful thing. It becomes a very powerful thing that can bring healing to you. So waking up, awakening, is when the conscious mind and the subconscious mind begin to talk to each other and you begin to see how you have been programmed to behave and think that has nothing to do with any suggestions coming from the superconscious and nothing to do with your true value system, with your soul or your authentic self, but rather how you've been told and programmed to think. And let me tell you something. Religion is in the business of programming your subconscious. Politicians, all of them, both parties, and the talking heads on TV, are in the business of programming the subconscious of multitudes of people. The thing is, unless you believe it's you, Unless it's believe it's you that's doing it, it's you that's choosing it, it's you that wants this, then you haven't really been programmed. As long as you can say, me, not me, messages coming out, oh no, that doesn't work for me. These are my values and I'm going to stay consistent to these. Those are not my values. I'm not going to receive them. So this is how group think and group consciousness works. Group consciousness is, like, I've got varying different value systems. I have things in my heart that I feel, and I'll be honest with you, there's no politician or political party that completely matches up. There are things that liberals, socialist liberals stand for, that I resonate with in my value system. And there are things, a lot of things, that the most conservative of the conservatives in our country, and capitalists, and whatever, pro-life, whatever, that they stand for that resonates with me. But then over here, there are things that don't resonate with me and I don't like. And over here, there are things that don't resonate with me and that I don't like. And if I give up my will, I will lose myself, I will lose my soul so that I can find acceptance and affiliation with one party or the other. And if I do that, then I'm subconsciously programmed to accept all the values, to accept all the messages without critically thinking, including the other guy over there is evil and wrong and horrible, or the other guy over there is evil and wrong and horrible. And so the issue becomes, 
I'm not thinking for myself. Same thing in discipleship. I'm going to go be a disciple. I'm going to go find a spiritual father. I'm going to go find a spiritual mother. I'm going to sit under somebody. What I'm doing is I'm abdicating my true will. I am abdicating my self. I am abdicating my values, which means I'm moving my conscious mind out of the way and I'm allowing my subconscious mind to be programmed. Now, remember, the subconscious mind does what? It gets into the body. So, when it gets into the body, it gets into my emotions. It gets into my feelings. So now, whatever my subconscious mind has accepted, if, if my subconscious mind accepts fully, you got a cigarette instead of a pencil, you touch my hand, guess what? My hand is going to respond with a blister. So even though it was a pencil, I experienced it as a cigarette, which means my truth is it's a cigarette. And you can't convince me that it's not because look at the blister. Or you can operate on my hand and I don't feel the pain because I've accepted so deeply in the subconscious mind that I don't feel the pain. That that's my experience. So that's my truth. So I'm certain. If I wasn't certain that that pencil was a cigarette, I wouldn't get a burn. If I wasn't certain that I wouldn't feel pain, I wouldn't let you cut on my hand. Make sense? Corporate cor- corporations use this. People have studied this, gang. You gotta understand. These, these are, these are secrets that are kept from you. But I'm telling you, the top people in marketing and advertising and corporations and political campaigns and religious circles know what they are doing. They know how to take your conscious mind and your will choice out of it and program your subconscious mind. So then what happens is you're reacting to all this stuff around you as though it's coming from you. And so that value really belongs to you. As though that thought pattern really belongs to you. As though that emotion really belongs to you. As though that belief really belongs to you. Or that it's objectively true when the truth is you've just been subconsciously programmed. So the path of the spiritual warrior is to wake up to all that. Wake up to all that and realize the degree and the depth and the level to which you've been programmed by something other than your own soul or the mind of God or your own values and your own authentic self. Something other than the glory of the Lord. You get it? And so then once once there's this mass hypnosis, then all they have to do is they put post-hypnotic suggestions in you. A post-hypnotic suggestion is, I'm going to give you this idea, and when I give you this idea, when you hear this word, when you see this image, when you feel this tap, you're going to immediately experience this state of being as real. And so you become programmed with post-hypnotic suggestions that when you see a label, that's what branding is. Branding is a post-hypnotic suggestion. If I'm good at branding, I will tell you a story about myself. I will craft an image of myself that I want you to believe. I will say it to you enough and with enough emotion and enough association that you will like it, that you will accept it, and then I will link a logo or my some symbol to that story so that when you see the symbol immediately as a post-hypnotic suggestion, you're right back in that state of mind. And the more emotion I can put in it to it, the more real it's going to feel, the more justified you're going to feel, and the more you're going to think it's true. But it's all bullshit. It's all programming. 
It's what Jesus meant when he said, I can gain the whole world but lose my soul. I can be looking so much outside myself for acceptance and love and to fit in and to tell me what's right and to tell me how to do life and all this stuff and it comes to me from the outside and I become programmed and I feel it and I think it and I believe it and I think it's coming from me but it's not coming from me. It's coming from the masses that are literally controlling and manipulating me and sucking off of me for their own benefit and in the meantime, I've so lost my soul, I don't even know that that's not the authentic me. And my conscious mind isn't running things. So the spiritual path then is to do thy will. Do your own will. To do your will. That's got to be one of the highest goals. To do your true will. What you truly want to do. What you truly want to experience. Your true will. Not a will that you've confused with the will of someone else who has manipulated and hypnotized you. Your will. Not the will of your family, not the will of your spouse, not the will of the party that you affiliate with or politicians or powers that be, not the will of the church, not the will of your friends, your will. So the conscious mind has to know and has to take control. The conscious mind needs to to wake up and say, I'm driving this bus from now on. I'm driving this boat from now on. I'm not going to let something else control me. I may not know what my true will is. I may not know what my true values are right now. But I'm going to wake up to my true values. And I'm going to find my voice if necessary. Or I'm not going to compulsively use my voice because I think I have to use my voice because then that's not my true will. So I'm going to have control, executive control over when I speak and when I don't speak. In what situations I speak up and in what situations I don't speak up. My true choice. My true will. That's the first step. Then the second step is to realize that a huge part of this executive mind, this voluntary mind, is to start giving the messages to the subconscious that I want to put into the subconscious. To be able to recognize So this is why it's so important in awakening that people get triggered. People say, Aaron, like, like this week, like, like I had more people tell me this week on my Facebook page. It's so crazy. Like people that never comment. I don't know if they watch a live. If they watch a live, they don't comment. And coming out of the woodworks on my Facebook page saying, we just want to hear you talk about spiritual things. Shut up about social issues. Shut up about these things that we care about, that you care about, because we don't care about that. Watch watch how narcissistic this is. Don't talk about this. Only talk about this. We love when you talk about spiritual stuff. Man, you really helped us. You really helped us grow. You really helped us change. We had so much respect for you. But but don't talk about this, because, man, you're way out there with this. So, see, watch that. Basically, in a very sophisticated, eloquent, verbose way, they were saying, Shut up about things that you care about, Aaron. We only want to hear you talk about what we care about. Am I trying to trigger those people? You're damn right I'm trying to trigger those people because they are so asleep. They are so asleep. And I'm not, this is not about an issue. This is about the fact that we live in a country right now 
where you cannot have real dialogue. Remember, remember, I mean, I don't know, some of you are older, maybe your experiences were different, but I remember 20 years ago, I remember in the 90s, I remember having really good friends, and one of the things we loved to do was get together and debate and disagree and share information. And, and those were those were happy times. To, I mean, we, we got, yeah, we got passionate. Yeah, we maybe we got angry at times. But there wasn't an expectation, you got to think like me or I don't value you. Like, there was real dialogue. And those for me, those are times when I grow. If I, if I only surround myself with people that think like me, then I'm living in an echo chamber of my own thinking, which just reinforces the whole problem. You see what I'm saying? So when we get so triggered that we can no longer have dialogue, we can no longer have connection, you have to agree with me on every single point, or I can't value you, I can't talk to you, and I can't have you in my life. There can be no more exchange. Beloved, that's a, a deep sleep. And it does not matter the content. It does not matter which side is the issue. What I'm saying is, if you get so triggered that you basically tell somebody, you can only talk about what I think you should be able to talk about, otherwise I'm not going to have anything to do with you and I think you're a horrible person, you're asleep. You're not awakened. You are asleep. And the only way some of those people that are asleep can wake up is if they're triggered. Now watch this. We've been programmed to believe that if you're loving and you're non-judgmental, you won't trigger somebody. Because somehow we've equated love as causing no pain. I want to tell you something. Sometimes I trigger people, not because I want to, not because I'm angry, because I realize how deeply asleep many of us are. And the only way they're going to wake up is if somebody triggers them. Doesn't mean they'll wake up. They may go back to sleep. They may be go even deeper into their belief system. But that's their choice. At least they had the opportunity to, to feel triggered, to feel that resistance. Like anytime I feel that, like if, I, if I'm talking to somebody and I feel, ugh, and, I, and I, something rises up, I stop immediately and I say, what is it in me? Not, not what is it in them. I don't try to correct them and make them right. I mean, literally, you know, I, I had some, and someone else tell me, don't, you, you talk too much about religious trauma. You know, people just need to move on. They just need to get over it. Because when I hear you talk about religious trauma, it just brings my vibration down. Think about that. Think about that. You exist. That, that, that person saying to me, you exist, Aaron, to raise my vibration. So I'm going to edit you. I'm going to censor you so that you only talk about what raises my vibration. And I don't give a fuck about the pain that people in religious trauma are in. That is being asleep. That is not love and light. That is not Jesus. That is not being led by the Spirit. That is not righteous indignation. Sleep. <sighs> okay, deep breath. I don't mean to get too... I just I want you guys to be able to see this. I want you guys to be able to see this. I want you guys to be able to see this. That we need to wake up. And it's, it requires humility. It, it, man, it's, it's the most humbling thing in the world to sit there and say, Wow. I wasn't in charge of my own ship. 
I wasn't in charge of my own ship. Something else was controlling me. Something else was driving me, right? And then I got to sort through all this because the pure in heart, they shall see God. All right, let's let's do something with the superconscious, and I'll I'll, I'll finish here because does, does that help you? Now here's the thing. Here's the thing I want you to understand. The spirit ministers to where, according to Paul, where's the information come from? It comes from the heart. So the superconscious, the mind of the spirit, ministers, speaks to, comes through the subconscious mind. So here's where it gets crazy. Because everything out here, everything in the physical dimension is coming from the outside in. The outside in. Information. And, and in that case, you don't want to be asleep. You don't want to have your subconscious. You want your executive self awake, man, in charge, alert, vigilant. Okay, I'm going to discriminate. I'm going to discern. You, you see it? I'm going to, I'm going to discern this stuff. I'm going to discriminate. Information's coming from the outside. And then my conscious mind is the gatekeeper that says, I want to let my, I want this to become part of my essence. I want to let this into my subconscious mind. So my conscious mind starts sending those suggestions down to the subconscious so that my subconscious can become programmed or can learn and adopt and receive like the seed on the ground and grow up and bear fruit. And so I only want to let that which is beautiful. I only want to let that which I want to experience. I only want to let that which I want to become an outcome in my life. I don't want to receive the suggestions that I'm sick. I don't want to receive the suggestions that at 50 certain things in men quit working or whatever. Uh, I don't want to receive the suggestion that uh, COVID-19 is going to wipe me out. Or take me out. I want to receive those suggestions. I want to receive the suggestion that I have the power to heal myself. I want to receive the suggestion that my immune system works the way it's designed to work. I want to receive the suggestion that God renews my youth like the eagles. And so those are the suggestions that I'm going to allow into the subconscious mind. And I'm going to try my best to keep those other suggestions out of the subconscious mind. See it? But that's coming from the outside through the gateway of the conscious mind into the subconscious. The spiritual operation is the exact reverse of that. This is why you will never find God, the scientists will never find God in the outside world, physical world. Because where the mind of God comes from, where the super consciousness comes from, it works the exact opposite way. It brings information up through the subconscious mind. The subconscious mind receives and embraces. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart first. Mind. Soul. Congruence. Strength. Action. Embodiment. But it comes to the heart first. The man looks on the outward man. God looks on the Heart. The eyes of the Lord are looking to and fro throughout the earth to find one whose heart is completely loyal. So the superconscious sense information the exact opposite way. It comes to the subconscious mind. And then from the subconscious mind, it bubbles up. That's what, what the word prophet means in the Hebrew, nabi, to bubble up. 
So the superconscious is sending information and it's coming and it's coming into the womb. Think about the subconscious as the womb. The subconscious is the feminine part, right? The, the conscious mind is the masculine part. It's the part that plants the seed. The subconscious is the womb that cultivates the seed and nurtures the seed to bring forth the baby. And God comes and the superconscious comes to the feminine part. It comes to the feminine part. It comes into the womb of, of the spirit. And so the information in the seed's coming, it's coming this way and then it comes up. So this is why I know people want quick steps to the supernatural, but until you get your conscious mind, your voluntary mind, in sync with your subconscious mind, your involuntary mind, you cannot experience the superconscious because what the superconscious is bringing will get stuck or distorted or changed or transformed. So if I believe that Jesus, I'll give you a perfect example, if I believe that Jesus is perfect theology, if I believe that Jesus only does things a certain way, only has certain characteristics, and I've programmed my subconscious mind into whatever Jesus I believe in. Let's take the, let's take the vineyard Jesus. And I'm not picking on the vineyard. I'm just thinking of like John Wimber and his Bermuda shorts. Remember when Bermuda shorts were popular back in the 80s? You know, everybody's showing up in the church in their suits and all this funky stuff. And, and <clears throat> Wimber shows up in Bermuda shorts and, and, uh, flip flops. I almost said thongs because we called them thongs back then, but I wouldn't be, that'd be the wrong trigger. See, see, see the post hypnotic suggestion there? He shows up with his flip-flops and his his uh, stuff. What do you call them? Bermuda shorts, right? So Bermuda short Jesus, man. He's just he's a fun guy to be around. He's loving. He brings healing, brings words, brings comfort, all that stuff. And you say God, you, you equate Jesus with God. Your subconscious mind has believed that, accepted that. Well, then when the superconscious begins to move, begins to brood over the waters of the subconscious mind. For that information to come up, how does that information have to come up? That information has to come up through the subconscious mind. So the subconscious mind is going to embrace it and say, oh, this is Jesus. And it's going to represent it to your conscious mind in the form of Jesus. Based upon what you have programmed yourself to believe about who Jesus is. That's how the information is going to come. That's why it can become distorted. So that the person who really taps in deep to the superconscious is a person who's able to surrender all that stuff, able to be aware of their own subconscious, and somehow is able to receive messages, even from the superconscious, that may go totally contrary to the programming of the subconscious. Because it's coming up, the spirit is coming up on you. Out of your innermost being will flow the river of living water. Of this, Jesus meant the spirit, it says in John chapter 7. In you as a well of them, it comes up through the subconscious into the conscious mind. So if you think your value is so objectively true that it is the value of the universal consciousness, the superconsciousness in the mind of God, then you will receive that value. (laughs) I'm sorry. You will not be able to receive, this is what I meant to say, you will not be able to receive something from the mind of Christ, from the mind of God, that's outside the context and the confines and the limitations of that value. If you believe that you are dependent on something outside yourself, 
to be healed, a God outside yourself to make up his mind and to be healed. You'll never be able to receive something from the superconsciousness that says, no, you can physician heal thyself. Here's some methods where you can heal yourself independently of me. And if that doesn't work, then you have access to some other things. But if I believe I can't, if I believe my limitation is, no, I can't do that, that's, that's taking too much glory to yourself, that's taking too much power to yourself, you'll never be able to receive a word that will bubble up from the superconsciousness to expand the horizons of what you're capable of. So that's why programming your subconscious is the first step. Taking your true will, feeding it into your subconscious mind is the first step because until that's ordered and sorted out, that's why the pure in heart, returning to your authentic self, the pure in heart, what shall see God, shall open up to the superconscious because now it can come through the subconscious into the conscious mind. I'll give you an example of this from Jeremiah and we'll be done. Jeremiah chapter 1, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. Now, this is important. He's the son of a priest. So understand that Jeremiah comes from a priestly line. The priests that were in Anathoth, back in biblical history, without going into it too much time, you can do the research yourself, were cut off from the priesthood. They were cut off from serving in the temple. They were cut off from God. They were cut off from Israel, the priestly line. So he's a priest without a lineage. He's a rejected priest. He's a despised priest. He's a priest without a connection to God and a priest without a temple. That's the cultural context. Then it says, To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. Now, the word of the Lord is uh, superconscious. So, somehow, superconsciousness speaks to Jeremiah. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you, and I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Now, put it in its context. Here's a priest that's been rejected by God. Here's a priest without a temple. Here's a priest without any connection to God. And yet God comes and says, I know you. See it? God comes and says, I sanctified you. And God comes and says, superconscious comes and says, I ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. Now watch what he says. Then said I. So much we could say about the ego and where this fits, but ego is the word actually for I in the Greek. This is written in Hebrew originally, but the I, then said I, my sense of self. This is so important. It's not just I responded with words. I'm speaking out of my sense of self. Ah, Lord, Behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. God is speaking to him about something eternal before I formed you in the mother's womb. Meaning, before you were born to this line of Anathoth, before you were born into this culture, independently of anything outside, I knew you, and I sanctified you, and I ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. And he brings them back into time and space. I'm a youth. I'm too young. Nobody's going to listen to me because I'm too young. And I cannot speak. Now, you can't be a prophet and cannot speak at the same time. So here's what I'm saying. The subconscious programming of Jeremiah is not only resistant to the word of the superconscious, the word of God, it is in direct, it stands in direct contradiction to it. God says yes, he says no. See it? But the Lord said to me, do not say, I am a youth. <laughs> Get rid of that. For you should go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, 
You shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. He's having a sensation. Not just hearing something, he's having a sensation. Touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, now see something. So all his senses are involved. He's hearing the word of the Lord. He's feeling sensations. And he's having a vision. But it's not out here. It's coming from within, like a dream. See, I've set you this day, again, see, I've set you this day over the kingdoms and over the nations to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build and to plant. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And he said, I see a branch of an almond tree. Now watch this. Moreover, the Lord said to me, what do you see? And he said, I see the branch of an almond tree. And then the Bible says here, then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. What word is he ready to perform? Well, what word had Jeremiah heard? And why did he see an almond branch? And what did God mean when he said, you've seen well? The reason he sees an almond branch is because you have to go all the way back in the story to Aaron, when, to the, I'm sorry, Korah and the sons of Korah, uh, priests in Israel, who are resisting Moses and Aaron, and they're, they're accusing Aaron, they're saying, Aaron has no validity. Aaron has no legitimacy. As a priest. Aaron, the original priest. So what does Moses do? He says, take the rods and put them before the ark of the Lord in the Holy of Holies. And the rod that buds, (laughs) he is the Lord's choice. And so I think it's overnight they sit there and they come out and Aaron's rod budded with what? Aaron's rod budded with almonds. So Aaron's rod was an was a branch of an almond tree. Aaron's rod was the branch of an almond tree. So watch the healing that's taking place. Watch the healing that's taking place inside of Jeremiah. God's using the storehouse of the stories that Jeremiah was told. He's using the storehouse of the subconscious to bring symbols up into the conscious mind in order to speak and communicate a message that's coming from the inside out, not from the outside in. You get it? In order to validate him and reprogram his subconscious sense of identity that says, I am but a child, I cannot speak. So the conscious mind has to be able to receive from the subconscious mind its own symbols, its own history, its own storehouse. You need to know your storehouse. You need to know your history. You need to know where you start and stop. You need to know where where you're crossing boundaries with other people. And you need to be comfortable letting other people set boundaries with you without getting triggered. Right? But you got to know the storehouse of your, your own thing. And the Lord said to me, you have seen well... For I am ready to perform my word. Now, now this is what's so cool. Where it says you have seen well in, in, in the, in the, in the original Hebrew there, the word seen means you have discerned. You have distinguished. In other words, this is the conscious mind. So you have the super conscious mind, the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah, bubbling up, speaking to the conscious mind through the subconscious mind, using the storehouse of images that are in the subconscious mind to communicate the message. But the conscious mind gets it. And 
in the Hebrew, what it says is you have seen and chosen well. So now the subconscious has to choose, has to make a choice of will and say, okay, I'm going to go for it. And it makes a choice. And then God says, I am ready to perform my word. What word? The word that Jeremiah is going to speak? No, not the word that Jeremiah is going to speak. The word that Jeremiah heard that God had spoken to him, that he was a prophet to the nations and he was going to put his words inside his mouth because because initially Jeremiah couldn't receive that word because his self, his eye was saying, no, I can't speak. I am but a child. And so God ministers to that and helps adjust and shift and change that thinking until his conscious mind accepts it and he reflects back on himself. Now he no longer sees himself as a child he cannot speak, but now he sees himself as the glory of the Lord. He sees himself, when he sees that almond branch, he sees himself as the glory of the Lord and then God says, okay, now I'm ready to transform you into that image or I'm ready to perform the very word that I have spoken to you. So the next thing that happens, he gets another word from God that he's supposed to go and speak to the nations. But before he could get the word to go speak to the nations, he had to receive the word that God was speaking to himself. He had to accept it into his subconscious mind and his executive mind, his executive self and his executive will had to say, I'm going to go for it. I see this. I reflect upon this and I'm going to be transformed and changed into this image. I'm going to be transformed in the image of the glory that I am rather than allowing the culture to dictate to me and tell me I'm too young, you don't have a voice, or I'm from a rejected line, I can't possibly be speaking for God. And those two factors are major reasons that Jeremiah's ministry was not received by the king or received in Israel. (laughs) Do you see it? Do you get it? This is why most of us can't move powerfully in the word that comes from the superconscious because we're so programmed by society. We're so programmed by religion. We're so controlled by our family. We're so controlled by doctrines or creeds or values that when the Spirit of God wants to penetrate through that and speak a word to us that is completely contrary to that, number one, we either cannot hear it. We cannot hear what the Spirit is saying because of our own subconscious programming, or our conscious mind, our subconscious mind starts battling with us and telling us, no, that can't happen. So Michelle Francesca Cohen shared a story this week on her Facebook page. I'll give you this example and then I'm done. Where she had developed some kind of... uh, Digestive problem, some kind of stomach problem. I forget what it was, but she looked, uh, she said she looked like a third trimester or something pregnant. Uh, Michelle, sorry if I'm getting this wrong, but you can correct it, whatever. Um, and she was told by the doctors that she needed to go to the hospital immediately. And she hears the word of the Lord, says, no, I want you to go to Israel. I want you to take a trip to Israel that she had had planned instead of canceling it, going to the hospital. And I want you to go into the tomb uh, where Jesus, Jesus' tomb, what they believe was Jesus' tomb over there. And I want you to declare the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in me and making me alive and quickening my mortal body. So she tells the story. She goes through all this pain and torment. And you can imagine traveling. She said she'd be uh, just um, curled up in pain as she's traveling, waiting several days to, to travel and get there, and then waiting days once she's there to get to the tomb of Jesus. And she said she walked into the tomb of Jesus, and for whatever reason, it was very small crowd that day and she was by herself 
And she just gave voice and she said, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is working in me and giving life to my mortal body. And she said at that moment, things began to get better. And she tells the story how from that point on, she, she gets healed of the condition. I don't believe it was instantaneous, but it's like it said in the scriptures, from that moment on, she began to heal. That's a perfect example of what I'm talking about, because watch this. How many of us would have had the willpower to surrender all our subconscious programming to that word? To surrender the common sense that it would take, the common sense, common sense that it would take. To surrender the message that that pain is giving to us. I'm almost done, buddy. Surrender all that subconscious stuff. So see, the conscious mind can take hold of that, but then our subconscious can talk us out of it. And so how many times have we not heard a word because our subconscious was so programmed? Or did we hear a word, but we lacked the ability to act on it, right? Because we weren't surrendered enough. Now, somebody would come back and say, yeah, but what about the times that I heard words like that and I did crazy stuff and nothing happened? What I'd like to suggest to you is you didn't hear from the superconscious. You heard from your subconscious, which you have been so programmed in so many ways when it comes to God, that your subconscious was speaking to you. Another part was speaking to you. It might even look like Jesus. might even sound like God. But it was 100% your subconscious mind talking to your conscious mind. And this is why this stuff isn't easy. This is why this is an inward journey. This is why this is an inward sorting out. This is why this stuff doesn't happen overnight. And this is also why narrow is the way that leads to life, but broad is the way that leads to destruction because there are very few people that are willing to take total responsibility for their life. So I'll give you this where to start. If you want to know where to start, wake up your conscious mind. Wake up your executive self. Take charge of your life. Take charge of your thinking and make the decision, I am here to do my will. My true will. My authentic will. Somebody says, oh, I thought we were here to do God's will. Where did you come from? (laughs) You came from the divine. You are an extension of that divine source. So when your will becomes purified, it is God's will. But it's your will. But that's a process. So you have to start by making up your mind saying, I'm going to do my will. I'm going to do my authentic will. Then the second part is, I'm going to get to know what really is important to me. What really do I care about? What really did I come here to do? And you sort, you begin to start sorting that stuff out and aligning with that and saying, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm, I don't care what people say. I don't care what I was taught. I don't care what my parents taught me. I'm here to do my will. But you start sorting that stuff out, right? Start sifting and sorting. Through all that stuff. Getting to know yourself. And then pay attention to your triggers. Conscious mind. Pay attention to your triggers. What? Why do I get so triggered over this issue? And the moment you go to, because they are wrong, is the moment you messed up. The moment you messed up. The moment you missed the lesson. The moment you did. Because you're looking outside yourself. When you get triggered and you realize, why am I getting triggered? What is the belief system Why am I feeling this resistance? Why do I feel a compulsive need to respond to this? Why do I feel a need to correct this person? Why can't I be happy and peaceful within myself unless this person does right? And work on changing that stuff. You're not doing real spiritual work and you're not awake. I love you, but you're not awake. 
And we vacillate between times of consciousness and unconsciousness. Just like we are awake for 12, 16 hours and we sleep for 8 hours, whatever. Awake for 16, sleep for 8. Just like we vacillate in the natural, we vacillate inside. There are times that we're asleep, times that we're unconscious and we don't realize it, and there's times that we're awake. Our best opportunities for growth, our best opportunities for advancement, and our best opportunities to getting into the mind of God is to recognize when we get triggered internally and do the work internally instead of externally. In other words, we go to work on ourselves. We don't go to work on the other person to try to fix them. All right. Hope that was a blessing to you. Got into a lot of stuff. My son is anxious to talk to me, so I'm going to let you go. Thank you for all the comments. Um, I wasn't able to see them. I hope this helped you. If you have questions, uh, whether you agree or disagree, um, feel free to comment in the comments, and uh, I'll try to catch up with those later. Namaste. God bless you. Uh, love all of you, whether you're watching now or later. Um, and uh, be blessed. <laughs>